Welcome to episode 16 of the podcast of Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Boy. Chapter 16, Essential Fat. It's almost time to leave for school, and Cliff has told the girls that they are not to wake Judy up. But Miriam lingers outside her parents' bedroom, watching her mother's closed eyes, watching for a sign that she can talk to her. She hadn't wanted her mum to come home from the hospital. It had been too long, and she'd feared that her mom would smell like the hospital, have tubes, and may not be normal. But now she yearns to talk to her mom every morning. Unfortunately for her daughters, Judy usually sleeps in until after they all leave for the day, until her alimentation has almost run out. Miriam looks over her shoulder to make sure her dad doesn't see her. She returns her gaze to her mother's eyes, searching for the slightest flicker. Judy rolls over and flips her eyes open. Miriam races in. She chatters to her mom until it's time to leave for school. Outside the bedroom door, she bumps into her dad, who is none too happy about Miriam waking her mother up. Judy calls out from the bed that it's okay, that she was awake, and Miriam dashes off to school on this cold, early January day. It's the weekend. Today, Miriam doesn't have to sneak a morning visit. She can't wait to see Judy. Everyone goes outside to play, and Judy gets some peace for her last hour of sleep. Judy's eyes snap open. She looks at Lester. The last bag is almost empty, but she has a moment to enjoy this last little bit of rest. She turns her head to look out the window. I could be pushing up daisies, she thinks as she gazes on the falling snow outside her window. I have lived one more day. I have an extra day to see Cliff, Cindy, Julie, and Miriam. Her entrancing smile lights her face at the thought as she gets up to prepare her dressing tray. But first, she trundles to the bathroom. She wheels Lester to the kitchen and opens the tap over a large roasting pan. She carries the pan to the stovetop and places a metal dressing tray and forceps in the water. She turns the electric burner on and waits until the water in the pan has boiled for 15 minutes. When the water has cooled, she fetches her supplies, takes a tray out of the water, and places the supplies along with the forceps onto the tray and carries it to the bathroom counter. Standing in front of the mirror, she clamps the tubing shut. She carefully peels off the gauze taped over the catheter site and tosses it in the garbage. She rips open a cotton white package unscrews the cap of the 1 to 750 detergicide solution, upends the bottle over the wipe, and gently cleans off all the dried pus around the catheter site. She shuts out of her mind the rawness of her skin. She chucks the wipe in the garbage and, before picking up the garamycin cream, idly scratches her arm. She squeezes some cream onto her fingers and strokes it around the catheter site. It brings relief. She takes a 10cc plastic syringe out of its package and a 22-gauge disposable needle out of its package. She inserts a needle into the syringe and plunges that into a bottle of heparin, sucking up 10 cc's. She places the syringe needle up on the tray and scratches her other arm. She clamps her line, unplugs the alimentation, picks up the syringe, removes the needle, tossing it into the garbage, and attaches the syringe to her line. She unclamps the line, pushes the syringe's plunger until 7 cc's of heparin have disappeared down her line, reclamps, rips off a piece of tape from the roll sitting on the tray, tapes the plunger to the syringe, rips off another piece of tape, and tapes the syringe to her skin. 
She then opens the package of gauze and tapes a square of it over the entire site. She scratches her first arm again and repeats the cleansing procedure on her G-tube site. Her flank burns and she steals herself before wiping it clean. She dollops on generous amounts of soothing garamycin cream as tears stain her cheeks with salt. She retapes the tube onto her skin, hopefully in a position that will not pull too much as she moves. She rips open a sterile dressing and tapes that over the G-tube. She detaches the straight drainage tubing and disposable urine collection bag from the free end of the G-tube. She disposes of the bag and puts the tubing over the side of the tub for the moment. Her bile bag has been drying overnight there, and she picks it up, attaches it to her G-tube, and straps it to her leg. She had put a few drops of deodorant in it the night before, which will neutralize the smell of her stomach's fluids as they drip into the bag during the course of her day. She sniffs the air, but detects no smell. She removes the empty Amogen bags out of their cuffs and throws them into the garbage along with all the empty packages and used disposable supplies. She scratches her leg, realizing this time what she's doing, and tries to stop herself. Her skin everywhere is cracked, the cells splitting apart, their edges peeling up until her scratching dislodges them in flakes. Moisturizer is no help. Although she accepts her skin plaguing her as another part of being the first person on alimentation, the past two or three months have been uncomfortable. On her last supply run, Jeech had taken blood from her, which he had sent to the Banting Institute for special testing. Apparently, the results are in, and Jeej wants to see her. Pushing Lester in front of her, she exits the bathroom, walks down the hall, pushes him into his closet, puts on a kettle to boil, and looks out the living room window as she waits. You're a lucky girl to be able to do that, she thinks. The kettle whistles. She carries it to the bathroom, pours it through the straight drainage tubing along with some detergicide, and leaves it to dry over the side of the bathtub. All that's left is to get dressed. Today, she's going to TGH for some tests. Jeej orders these and other tests after much thought on his part, but with little notice to her and Cliff, in order to assess her nutritional status and or to figure out the cause of puzzling problems. Yet as scary as these tests are to her, they have become a frequent part of her life, and she plays them down to all and sundry. She especially characterizes them to her girls as routine and just a normal part of life. She doesn't want them to feel the fear that she does. Cliff has already put her suitcase in the car and is ready to drive through the snow-piled streets for what Judy and Cliff characterized to their daughters as a routine trip to TGH for some tests. Outside, she kisses the girls goodbye and tells them that Mrs. Kelly will get them dinner. They wave goodbye before scampering off to play. They don't start worrying until she doesn't come home that night. Back on G South, they biopsy Judy's liver. It's January 3, 1972. The results are sent to Jeej fairly quickly. He scans them, realizes what he must do, and heads to the ward to tell Judy. He sits down by her bed, crosses his arms, leans back in his chair, and launches into an explanation of his plan for her. Her smile never wavers. As you know, many years ago, research showed that in animals, certain polyunsaturated fatty acids were necessary and could not be synthesized from the diet or from the body by the body. And what happens is that when we lack this essential fatty acid, we get scaly skin and whole other changes in salts in the nervous system. These fats are also necessary for proper myelin sheath formation, for nerve conduction. But you see, most of us have enough body fat that even if you don't eat any fat for many years, we can supply essential fatty acids from it. You understand? Uh-huh. 
Now, consequently, essential fatty acid deficiency was observed in animal studies and in children who were placed by their parents on an aberrant diet containing no fat. Now, when long-term total parenteral alimentation is given, what actually happens is that the carbohydrate is high enough that insulin levels become quite high in the blood, and that prevents your body fat from being mobilized. And so, you got essential fatty acid deficiency not because you lack the stores in your body fat, but because the carbohydrate is locking the fatty acid into the adipose tissue, your fat. And none is available in the circulating plasma because we're not infusing it. You see? Yes, so you need to give me the fat again. Yes. Dr. Cooksis at the Banting Institute, a lipid biochemist, has analyzed your blood for us and found that you have low levels of linoleic acid and excess of 22 polycarbon polyunsaturates. Together with the results of your liver biopsy we did on January 3rd, which showed fatty changes, and your liver function test results, which are more worrying to me, we've determined that you need fat. Up to now, we had heard that alimentation produces a fatty liver. No one quite knew what it was due to. And in the beginning, the kind of feeding we were doing on you, we didn't see any fatty liver. But now you have a fatty liver. And what our studies on you tell us is that the conventional thinking on this is wrong. Lipid is required to keep the fat out of the liver. So we're going to replace some of the carbohydrate with lipid, and we'll see what happens. We don't quite know what your fat requirement is, so we'll need to play around with it a bit. We'll start you off on 500 milliliters per day and see how that goes. If all goes well, we'll be able to discharge you in a few days. I've already spoken to pharmacy about this. Okay? Judy nods. Finally, her skin will be healed. On the 11th, Langer deals with her other chronic problem and changes her G-tube. On January 12th, Cliff drives down to TGH with trailer and tow to pick up Judy and her supplies. On her way out, Judy stops by Jeej's office and tells him that she wants to do something to thank him. He tells her that's not necessary, that her good health is thanks enough, and her cookies too, of course. She laughs and tells him that's nonsense. She's going to throw a barbecue for him, his family, the GI ward staff, and the new alimentation patients. He graciously acquiesces and says he looks forward to it and to seeing where she lives. I'll send you an invite and a map so you won't get lost, she tells him waves goodbye, and continues down the hall with Cliff to the car and the brittle cold outside. You have been listening to Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Jijiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shereen Gigi Boy. <laughs>